In 2018, Dr. Wes Bellamy, a city council member from Charlottesville, Virginia, watched a video in Danville, Virginia. He was at the Danville Museum of Fine Arts and History in what was once the Sutherland Mansion. Sutherland, as in William T. Sutherland, a wealthy, white, former Danville resident. During the last days of the Civil War, Sutherland's estate served as the unofficial Confederate White House for Jefferson Davis. Today, it's an historic site. But when he watched the educational video about the home's original owner, Councilman Bellamy noticed there was also a lot of history left out. So when the curator came back, he stood up and said something. We sat and we listened about a slave owner with no mention of him actually owning the slaves and he was treated like a hero. I'm just flabbergasted and really disappointed. Councilman Bellamy's impromptu speech at the Danville Museum of Fine Arts and History made the local papers the next day. And it got a lot of folks in Virginia and Danville thinking, what types of stories are left out of official histories? And what stories might we find in small southern cities like Danville, places that don't often make the history books, but are filled with African-American history? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason, I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, the first of a three-part series about the small city of Danville, Virginia. Danville, like so many other towns, is reckoning with its own history of racism and rewriting its narrative. To start, we go way back in the city's history, back to the 1800s. This week's episode, Reconstructing Danville. In 1883, a race riot transformed Danville, and some say the entire South. Oh yes, no, there's a, there's a big circular that's sent around the entire state of Virginia saying, horrible things happening in Danville, race riot, white people have to defend themselves against terrible black people. Um, and that, that plays a role in the election. Later, we'll hear more about the legacy of William T. Sutherland, who once owned the last White House of the Confederacy in Danville and also enslaved black Virginians. He was you know, truly enmeshed in what we think of as the Southern plantation economy. But first, Jane Daly. She's a professor of American history and law at the University of Chicago and studied the 1883 riot for her book, Before Jim Crow, politics of race in post-emancipation Virginia. Jane, what were the social norms governing black and white interaction in post-war Danville, Virginia? Well, there weren't real social norms, and that was a lot of the challenge. As far as white people were concerned, black people should behave the way they had under slavery and get out of their way and take off their hats and say, good afternoon, ma'am, and these sorts of things. African-Americans thought that now that they were emancipated, now that they were free people, the same rules should apply for them on streets as applied for white people. So during this period, 1883, there was a party in power called the Readjusters. I have never heard of the Readjusters before this. Who were they? Uh, Well, you haven't heard of them because um, white Virginians tried to erase them because they were embarrassing. It was a white-black coalition. No one wanted to see that. Um, They were a coalition of... A couple different groups, white Democrats and African-American Republicans and then sort of white independents that formed in opposition to elite 
democratic rule. And what was their mission? The thing that bound them was they wanted infrastructure, especially public schools. They were paying a lot in taxes, and they weren't getting anything out of those taxes because those taxes were used to fund the debt, which is called why they're called readjusters. They wanted to, quote-unquote, readjust the debt. In other words, the state debt, bring it down. So they had real interests in common um, in very concrete things like schools. Help me understand what kind of debt we're talking about. You mean throughout the South, after the war, southern states owed a bunch of money to the Union? In this case, what we have is a huge debt for antebellum infrastructure. So Virginia, like everybody else, wanted to have railroads, and they wanted canals, and they wanted to be you know, modernized, and they didn't have any money to do that, so they um, sold bonds to Europeans. And after the war, all of that was destroyed, but the debt was still there. And some states said, forget it, we're not paying that debt. Uh, and, you know, Virginians with their high sense of honor said, we're paying the debt. And that meant that services were cut for everybody in the state. Why did Virginia have this particular bond of honor? It's not particular to Virginia, although I think it is emphasized more um, in Virginia. But this whole Southern white man code of honor was really something that crossed state lines for sure. And it tended to stay within the elite And was Virginia's ruling party more likely to be composed of elite people? Yes. I mean, pretty much everybody was. But Virginia, Virginia's white elite had a particularly strong stranglehold on politics in Virginia. White men in Virginia weren't even enfranchised until 1851. So how did the readjusters gain power? If the readjusters are biracial and not elite, how do we have white non-elite and African-American lawmakers elected in Virginia? Well, they forged a common interest. And the common interest they forged, again, were very quotidian things like a desire for public education. Another thing that Virginia didn't have before the war was any system of public schools. So people felt very strongly about having that. Uh, African Americans felt strongly, but so did white people. And that was a huge thing that, that bound them together. And also, they just felt generally oppressed by the ruling class, which tax them in ways that they thought were unfair. How long did the readjusters have power? Four years, 1879 to 1883. And were white people voting for African Americans in this biracial coalition? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. In Danville, they were, um, interestingly, so that you have elected officials in Danville who were elected by some whites, more blacks than whites, but who were elected by white voters as well as black voters. The important thing is that there was a black policeman because that was resisted incredibly by um, white Democrats and sometimes by white readjusters, too. So the fact of representation is important. Help me understand whether Danville was an important city in the scheme of things back in this era. Was it a renowned Virginia city? Was it more powerful then than it is now? It was more powerful then than it is now. It, w- it wasn't renowned in the sense of, you know, when we think of Richmond, but it was it was a town on the make in the 1880s. It was becoming industrialized. There were visionaries who wanted to harness the power of the Dan River uh, and have textiles in Danville, which they do, of course, eventually. So it was it was one of these cities that's growing very rapidly and becoming more influential by the day. One of the things that you look closely at in your book 
is how people of different races and social classes were interacting on the sidewalks. Tell me about the sidewalks and what was happening there. Well, the first thing to understand about the sidewalks is they were nothing like ours. (laughs) They were about 18 inches above the ground. They were typically made of wood in this period. They were narrow, um, so that if somebody, say, knocked you off a sidewalk, you ended up in the gutter. And the gutter was not a nice place to be. Horses were on the street, so you can imagine what's in the gutter if you have a whole street full of horses, for example. So it's it's a big deal to be knocked off of a sidewalk in these years in Virginia. And was it a sidewalk incident between white and black men that sparked what happened in Danville that day in 1883? Yes, although it's an interesting one because it's kind of indirect. Uh, what happened was two African-American men, working-class men, are walking down the sidewalk, and a white working-class man is too. And then there's a couple, a white couple, and one of the African-American men accidentally kind of brushes the, the white lady, and everyone goes on. But the white man who has observed all of this decides to become offended by it. And he's the one who confronts um, the young African-American men and saying, you know, you should apologize for that. And the black man says, basically, don't need to. You know, he said something like, I'm sorry, ma'am, but but the other white man wants more. And the African-American men say, no, this is over. And right away, what happens? They beat up the white guy. And then a small crowd gathers And the white guy is sent off to wash his face, you know, wash off the blood. But meanwhile, more people, more white people, gather on the street and become incensed at this act of violence by a black man uh, against a white man. These guys, they're probably like 20 years old. Right. So they say, call for the policeman. And and this is significant. The policeman who comes running is an African-American. And so at first, some people in the crowd refuse to believe that he's a policeman or refuse to let him do his job. Um, A couple more white policemen then come. And the question is, who to arrest? And things are getting complicated and and confused at this point. And a bunch of the white men sort of go to the sidewalk. And then one one of them starts shooting into the crowd into the black crowd. Actually, it's a mixed crowd. He could have easily hit hit a white person. He doesn't. He hits a black person. And and no one understands to this day why he did that. Was there then a gunfight between blacks and whites? No, uh, there wasn't. Uh, For one reason, African-Americans weren't armed. There's There's a concealed weapons law in Virginia at this time that is there in part so that people don't shoot each other when they're voting. And the white men were violating that They had weapons, but none of the African-Americans did. How many shots were fired? How many people killed? Only a handful of people were were killed, which maybe doesn't sound like like much these days. Uh, The shots, you can never never trust the testimony, how many shots were fired. We just say lots. And then was there pandemonium after that? There was pandemonium after that, and mostly what happened is the African-Americans in town went home and stayed there. And then in the crucial election that happens a couple of days later, the black turnout is negligible because people are afraid. Uh, The white turnout is strong. And that's when the readjusters lose power in Danville, and they also lose power statewide. I understand that after this incident, the white people are also afraid and think, oh, no, African-Americans with power are scary to us. 
They are afraid of African Americans with power. They're afraid of black men who vote and who act like men. And do they use this in the election rhetoric? Oh, yes. No, there's a, there's a uh, big circular that's sent around the entire state of Virginia saying horrible things happening in Danville, race riot, you know, white people have to defend themselves against terrible black people. Um, and that, that plays a role in the election. The readjusters run around the state of Virginia trying to say, no, that's not what happened. Uh, but it doesn't matter. In the larger scheme, was the Danville incident any worse than violent confrontations over race that broke out elsewhere? I don't think it was it was either worse or better. Um, for Virginia, what matters is that it tipped an election. So it was the last the last stop on progressive interracial politics in Virginia uh, until the 1960s. When the readjusters lost, white supremacist Democrats were ushered in and they killed black voting uh, for another 50, 50 years. And they also killed a lot of white voting too, which is something people don't realize. About a third of white voters in Virginia were also disenfranchised at the same time as African-American voters. After the incident happened, was anyone ever held accountable for their role in the killings? Was there sort of the equivalent of the Mueller report at this time? (laughs) Um, Well, there is a report, actually. Uh, No one's held accountable, but there is a report um, in Congress. There's actually a congressional investigation of this riot because William Mahone, who's the leader of the party and a United States senator, claims that the riot infected the election so that it wasn't a fair election. Do you think there's something inevitable about the breakdown of an interracial order in Virginia? Was it just too tentative after the Civil War and slavery to think that black and white Virginians could have shared elected interests? No, I actually think just just the opposite. Um, One of the things that impressed me about the readjusters was not that it was inevitable either that they rose or that they fell, uh, but just how hard it was to kill them, meaning that white supremacists had to work really hard to beat the readjusters, and then it took them another 40 years to get black and white voters disenfranchised in Virginia. So it's not until 1902, actually, that Virginia finally you know, disenfranchises all of the people that they would like to disenfranchise. So what I took out of the story was how resilient the coalition was and just just how much violence it took uh, to break it. I think very few of us who aren't historians have gotten enough of an education on this period of Reconstruction after the Civil War or this period of the readjusters. All we know is that Jim Crow happened, right? Right we don't get that it wasn't necessarily inevitable. We forget, we don't forget the period before Jim Crow. It's really not, it's not taught. It's not taught in Virginia at all, I think. Um, or again, in part, No, no, but even in its home state, it could stand to be, to be taught. You know, North Carolinians actually know about the Wilmington riot. Virginians don't really know this, this portion of, of their past. And I think it would be a, a good thing for them to know. Jane Daly, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you. Jane Daly is the author of Before Jim Crow, The Politics of Race in Post-Emancipation Virginia. She's a professor of American history and law at the University of Chicago. When Wes Bellamy confronted the museum curator at the Danville Museum of Fine Arts and History, He did so because he knew the building wasn't just a museum. 
Instead, it had first been a mansion that belonged to former Confederate officer and wealthy benefactor William T. Sutherland. We spoke with Jeffrey McClurkin, professor of history and American studies at the University of Mary Washington, to better understand the life and legacy of Sutherland and his mansion. Well, Sutherland in this case was William Thomas Sutherland, who uh, was a longtime leader uh, in the city of Danville, um, incredibly prominent, um, one of the richest men in Danville and Pennsylvania County before the Civil War and the richest man uh, in the city and county after the war. Had he owned slaves? Were there many? He had, and like many of the elite uh, white elite of the day, slavery was a was a big part of uh, the economic industry there. Although he was also involved in manufacturing and selling tobacco, and he was involved with the banking system, so he was you know truly enmeshed in what we think of as the Southern plantation economy. Was he a politician in Virginia during the Civil War? He was. So Sutherland was mayor of Danville from 1855 to 1861. And then in 1861, as it looked like a war was coming, as it looked like there was a a question about whether or not Virginia was going to secede from the Union, Sutherland was one of the two delegates from the Danville area that was sent to this secession convention. And he actually went as what we would call a a conditional unionist. Uh, He was actually not in favor of seceding but it was not an absolute opposition to secession. And so he actually voted against secession initially, but then after Abraham Lincoln called for 75,000 troops to try to put down the rebellion, he changed his mind and was in support of uh, secession. What do you think his relationship was during the war years to the Confederacy? Was he sort of laissez-faire to all that fighting and the bureaucracy, or was he a real believer? He very much embraced the cause of the Confederacy, and he thought he might get a field appointment as a general. Uh, That didn't happen. He did take an appointment as a major in the Confederate Army, uh, although it was largely as a quartermaster uh, based in Danville. Um, So he spent the war uh, in Danville uh, working to make sure that the railroad lines that went through uh, were kept up, that Um, supplies made their way to Richmond, and that that Danville continued to connect to the rest of the Confederacy. What was Danville like during the Civil War and immediately afterward? I mean, was it considered a large and prominent city? Was it a small mill town? How would you describe the Danville of the Civil War? The Danville of the Civil War is very much um, based around two things, tobacco farming and manufacturing, and it's a central location as a transportation hub for a couple of different um, railroad lines. And so um, it's not a particularly large city, but it's not a particularly small city either. People in the state would have, would have known about it. People in other states would have been aware of it uh, because uh, of its role in, if you were going to Richmond from uh, large parts of the South, uh, you, you would have to go through Danville. Um, and so people certainly uh, talked about it and wrote about it. Um, but so tobacco and, uh, and um, its, its role in transportation are its two biggest, two biggest Civil War era um, features. Uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, um, tobacco continues to be uh, incredibly important. And Danville continues to be 
uh, a way station for um, for the trains that go through there uh, to Richmond. Now, the whole southern economy is pretty devastated at this point, and so what you don't see as much of is uh, the opportunities for, say, manufacturing. But that's something actually Sutherland uh, sees as something that can be changed. And so Sutherland actually is among the founders of the town's cotton mills. So even though cotton isn't grown in Danville or the Danville area, uh, it's grown much further south, uh, he sees an opportunity because of the river, the Dan River, uh, he sees an opportunity to to build cotton mills and in fact is is part of a, a group of partners that build one of the largest cotton mills in the world. And was that a, quite a going enterprise for a while? It was, yeah. It was uh, incredibly successful, and it and it very much put um, put Danville on the manufacturing map. It 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 effectively transforms the, the the economy of Danville for many years into one that focuses on cotton production. So it goes from 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 a place in which the vast majority of of people, both white and black, would have uh, focused on agriculture to. Um, while continuing to have an important agricultural component to really being an, an industrial town, to being a mill town. So it's a, it's a pretty significant change. Even though Sutherland had owned many slaves in this plantation or system of farms, after the war he's still wealthy or quickly acquires new wealth. A lot of people, you write, appealed to him for money. They wrote letters to him asking for help. Yeah, they did, and and it's uh, his his wealth is is why people would have written to him. He was known as uh, one of the wealthiest people in town. He continues to to play a prominent role uh, in railroads. He continues to play a prominent role in tobacco uh, processing, and then of course his 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 role in the in the cotton mill. Um, so people look to him for support, and and so um, for the most part, these are um, these these are white. These are white people in the area. For the most part, these are um, people who have been damaged in some way by the war. Um, but uh, but but they're looking to him for money. They're looking to him for his influence. They're looking to him to try to uh, help them try to achieve some kind of goal. Um, and and they're really tapping into a, an older uh, kind of relationship between elites and um, and and working class or even poor. Uh, Men and women um, in the South, and and so they're 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 playing on personal relationships. They're trying as much as possible to address those connections. Was it just white Americans that appealed to him for money, or did African Americans also appeal for money? Well, it's hard to tell from the petitions exactly the race of of everyone uh, who appealed to him, but the vast majority of those I was able to identify um, were in fact were in fact white, um, and most of them actually were. Um, were were veterans or the families of of Confederate veterans. He was good to them. Yeah, and and from what I can tell from petitions and the responses to the petitions, he favored Confederate veterans and their families over other petitioners. After the Civil War, what happened to Danville in terms of Reconstruction? In the the 70s and 80s, what was going on to reshape the political climate there? Virginia is completely different when it comes to Reconstruction politics uh, because it has a a unique uh, emergence of a biracial political party known as the Readjusters. Um, And what they want to readjust is all the debt that was accumulated during the Civil War. They don't want to just wave all of that debt off, and they want to invest money in the 
the state's schools. They want to invest it in railroads. They want to invest it in industry. Um, and so uh, the readjusters, um, whites and blacks working together in uh, state government, uh, managed to take over the state government uh, in the late 1870s and early 1880s. Um, and that plays out in Danville, too. Um, and um, Sutherland is very much on the side uh, of the opponents of the readjusters. Um, he, before the Civil War, he is a Whig. Uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, he uh, becomes a Democrat. And back then, the Democrats were different from what we think of now. Absolutely. So, so Democrats at that time would have been very much uh, on the side of um, conservative government, would have been very much on the side of uh, opposition to um, racial equality. Um, it was a very different... So the, part, the parties have, have changed pretty significantly over the 20th century. But in the 1880s, um, in the late 1870s and in the 1880s, the, the Democratic Party um, very much opposed this biracial coalition of readjusters. And, and Sutherland was one of these. Uh, was one of these Democrats in in Danville. Uh, And in fact, one of the moments that is pointed to as ending the readjuster rule is a race riot that happens in Danville in 1883. And Sutherland chairs a committee of Democrats known as the Committee of Forty that puts out their own version of the account for this um, for this race riot and, and, and effectively creates a story about a, an aggressive black mob that, that initiated it. Sutherland was so close to the Confederacy that, in fact, his house for a very brief time, for one week, right at the end of the Civil War, was called the White House of the Confederacy, uh, the, the Southern White House of the Confederacy. One of the things about Danville being where it is on the railroad line meant that when Jefferson Davis fled Richmond as Union troops uh, closed in, it made sense for the Confederate government to leave on trains that went through Danville. And in fact, they retreat and stop at Sutherland's house, and Jefferson Davis resides in Sutherland's house for about a week before he heads on further south out of town. And so Danville does have this reputation as being the last capital of the Confederacy. It's the last place where Davis actually set up, uh, and the government of the Confederacy attempted to reset uh, and to see if there was any possibility of continuing the war. It turned out that there wasn't. While Jefferson Davis was staying in the house that week in Danville, he didn't realize that Lee had fought a losing battle. There was so much that was still up in the air that week. It wasn't clear whether Lee would be able to escape. It wasn't clear whether uh, other Confederate forces might be able to, uh, to, to reform or to, or to come support uh, uh, Davis and the, and the Confederate government. So it was a moment of confusion. It was a moment of anxiety for, uh, for Confederates. Uh, and, and Danville is at the center of that. And, and even more specifically, William T. Sutherland's house is at the center of that. Well, Jeff McClurkin, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very much, Sarah. Jeffrey McClurkin teaches history and American studies at the University of Mary Washington. He's the author of Take Care of the Living, Reconstructing Confederate Veteran Families in Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. Earlier in the show, you heard Charlottesville City Councilman Wes Bellamy. He spoke out in response to a Danville Museum's portrayal of William T. Sutherland, a wealthy Virginian who owned slaves before the Civil War. There was no mention of him getting basically all of his income off of the backs of black people. And the whitewashing of history is truly what continues to set us back. To understand why stories of people like William T. Sutherland have been whitewashed, as Councilman Bellamy put it, we take a closer look at the history of Reconstruction in small southern cities. During Reconstruction, civil rights for African-American men took a few tentative steps, but those small steps toward political equality also created a ferocious white supremacist backlash in places like Danville. Historian Caitlin Verboon teaches at Virginia Tech. She says to understand Reconstruction and why it failed to bring justice to African Americans in the South, we have to start by understanding President Andrew Johnson. So Andrew Johnson is Lincoln's vice president. Uh, Originally, I think, born in in North Carolina, but he uh, serves as an adult in Tennessee, and he's the only congressman who doesn't resign his seat when his state secedes. So... In 1864, Lincoln and the Republicans nominate him as Lincoln's running mate because they want to signal to the country that they are a national party, that they want the country to be reunited after the war, and so they're not just a party of Northerners. And so that's how they end up with Andrew Johnson. Of course, no one was expecting that Andrew Johnson would ever be the one leading the actual process of reconciliation and reconstruction. So under Andrew Johnson, he decrees what? for the white South and the black South? So he actually is very lenient. He basically, in effect, reinstates all of these white Southerners who had financially, militarily, intellectually supported secession. And he makes them eligible to go back and hold the offices they held before uh, the Civil War. So when these old planters come back into power, basically what they do is they try to reinstate slavery without using the actual word slavery. So they take their slave codes and they turn them into black codes. Mississippi does it almost immediately. Several other states follow suit. And what this does, these codes say things like black men are not allowed to carry firearms. It says if you leave your place of employment, you will be arrested for vagrancy. And most galling, perhaps, is laws that basically mean that if you are arrested for anything, you'll be charged a fine, right? So a misdemeanor comes with a fine rather than jail time. But if you can't pay your fine, they will give you to anyone who can pay your fine. So that means that white Southerners can go to the courthouse and basically purchase people to work for them because then once they've paid your debt, you have to work for them until they say your debt's been repaid. Well, this doesn't sound like reconstruction. Exactly. So a lot of moderate Northerners start to support a more radical Reconstruction. So um, in 1866, the midterm elections, they see all this happening. They elect a much more radical slate of congressmen who come back to Washington in late December 1866, early 1867, and they pass a number of laws um, and acts that we collectively we know as the beginning of radical Reconstruction. And that's when the sort of real... Uh, revolution 
of Reconstruction really starts to take off because they divide the South into military districts and importantly, they enfranchise African-Americans. So for the first time, African-American men are able to vote. And what that means, there's so many black men that they can sweep all of these old guard out and they can elect new politicians in the statewide elections of 1868. Roughly how many African-American men were voting when they now had this vote under radical reconstruction? Or is there a lot of, no, not me, I'm too afraid of the violence that might come to me if I try to vote? We have inherited this narrative because of what happens later, that 1865 African-Americans are granted their freedom, and it takes them several generations to sort of get off the plantation, get into cities, and agitate for their rights. But that's not what happened. There's this period after the Civil War when the radical Republicans are in charge of figuring out how to put the country back together, uh, where African-Americans are seizing the opportunity. They are asserting their rights uh, to vote, their right to get an education, their rights uh, in very bold ways. And that's been lost. And that makes it easier for us to dismiss Reconstruction as a failure rather than as a revolution that was consciously dismantled. So right after slavery ended and in those early years, where were African-Americans living in the South? Were they building their own new homes? Were they moving in with free relatives? Were they going back to the places they'd lived before and making new deals? Many African Americans, many, many freed people, many formerly enslaved people uh, take advantage of the fact that for the first time they are not confined uh, to their plantation. They take advantage of that and they uh, leave their plantations. Some go in search of lost family members because remember, At the moment of emancipation, your family might be scattered around the South um, because your family had been broken up through death and through sales. Uh, So some hit the roads looking for their family members. Some head to larger towns and cities because there's safety in numbers. So those small cities grew after the Civil War. The black population moved in. Exactly. Of course, there is a black population in these cities before uh, the Civil War because there is urban slavery. It's not the kind of slavery that we think about. But what happens after the Civil War in these uh, smaller cities is that the white population remains pretty steady, but the black population grows, which means that proportionately there are more and more African Americans in these small southern towns. How did the white people respond to that? I don't think that we can understate the impact this had on the mindset of white Southerners. Newspapers are full of reports about how white Southerners are so upset to see, and these are their words, hordes of Negroes clogging up the byways and the highways, sitting on the steps of the courthouse, uh, hanging out in the markets. They are suddenly this very, very visible presence in these Southern cities, and that is alarming and threatening to white people who are used to being able to dictate the movements. They're used to being able to be the ones who allowed or prohibited the presence of these African-American people on streets and sidewalks in markets. One way we know how threatening white Southerners found this mass movement of African-Americans is that we can look at the city council in Augusta. In 1865, they 
decided to have every single African-American in the city register with the city council. They've literally tried to number every single black person in the city, and they had to have with them a white person who could vouch that they were okay and who could vouch that they also were who they said they were. Of course, it fails because that's a huge bureaucratic nightmare of trying to number and place every single African-American, especially in this chaotic post-war period where people are in and out of the city all the time. So it, it ends up being a nightmare and they can't sustain it. But this is an attempt made to put African-Americans back in an ordered place that white people can keep track of. How are African-Americans, after decades of slavery, acting in front of white people? Were they being deferential or were they being proud and bold? They were absolutely not being deferential. That is what white Southerners wanted. And African-Americans, on the other hand, are asserting their freedom. They're asserting their mobility. One of the, to us, seemingly sort of trivial complaints is that African-American women are acting the lady. They're wearing um, nicer clothes. They're insisting on being addressed as madam, um, being referred to as ladies. And, you know, we think of that as sort of uh, not that big of a deal. But for these African-American men and women being treated with the same dignity and civility that any other person on the street would uh, would garner mattered a lot. One way of thinking about this is that white supremacy is a project. It's not an established fact in 1880s. White Southerners are constantly building it. And that means that these small slights can't be allowed to stand because that is going to knock this house of cards over. So even these, what seems like to us, crazy minor infractions have to be dealt with swiftly. They have to be dealt with dramatically. And oftentimes they have to be dealt with violently in order to make sure that this white supremacy project stands. When it comes to race relations, do you see threads today that you can trace back to how black and white Americans interacted in places like Augusta, Georgia, and Danville, Virginia, in those years after the Civil War ended? Yeah, I think that this is a really relevant question and one that I never I never hoped would be relevant. Uh, but we have been, as a nation, policing behavior in public since the very moment of black freedom in the United States. It has been a project of white authorities to police black behavior in public spaces. We can see that very clearly in what I mentioned before with the slave codes becoming black codes. That's policing how African-Americans are allowed to behave in public. And what it does is it makes, it legally criminalizes African-Americans who are doing anything other than working. And I think that the ways that we interact in public space and the ways we police each other's behavior is often sort of seen as divorced from political action, but it's not. It is an essential part of our politics and how our nation operates and how citizenship and freedom can either be curtailed or be broken wide open. Caitlin Verboon, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you. Caitlin Verboon is a postdoctoral fellow in history at Virginia Tech. She's writing a book called Making Space, which explores the ways black and white Southerners used public city space to remake citizenship after the Civil War. 
Laws were only one way white Southerners reasserted their power after Reconstruction. They also used violence. Sometimes the method was gunfire, like in Danville in 1883. Other times, it was lynching. Tom Costa is an historian at the University of Virginia College at Wise. He's part of a team working to memorialize Wise County's three lynching victims. Yes, uh, Sarah, the, the, um, the three lynchings in Wise County in 1902, a man named Wiley Gwynn was lynched at a place outside of Coburn called Bontown. He was accused of attacking a, a 12-year-old white girl. They were going to hang him from a tree, but he ran away, and they, and they ended up shooting him. In 1920, a man named David Hunt or David Hurst supposedly attacked a 60-year-old white woman at her home and hanged him from a nearby uh, rail bridge at Trestle. And then in 1927, Leonard Woods was accused of shooting a, a white man from Coburn. They were both mine workers, and a mob of whites from Coburn and some from Kentucky broke him out of jail in Whitesburg, took him right across the border in neighboring Virginia, and um, hanged him from a, a, a platform that had just been erected the week before for a ceremonial opening of the road between Virginia and Kentucky. Because Leonard Woods' uh, lynching attracted a lot of national attention, it spurred Virginia Governor Harry Byrd to convene a meeting, and he had the legislature pass uh, the first state anti-lynching legislation the following year. And the Leonard Woods lynching in, in November of 1927 is the last recorded lynching in Virginia. It doesn't mean there were uh, no more lynchings, but they were probably private, uh, not public um, hangings, and the the spectacle, the what the feature of lynching was the torture and the public spectacle that that went away after 1927. When were most of the lynchings in the nation? The period from the 1880s through World War II is generally the high point of lynchings. Um, the height is probably the 1880s and 1890s, early 1900s, and then there was a, a bit of a lull, and then there was a resurgence in the 1920s. I think the estimates are over 4,000 documented lynchings. Was there pushback by other white citizens? Any horror on their part? Ye yes, over and over again. You see newspaper editors and, of course, especially people all across the northern states um, would condemn these lynchings, even Officials in southern states would regret, but they felt powerless to do anything because, you know, political reasons um, and the feeling that southern communities had a right to, to defend themselves by these means. Are the lynchings in your area related in any way to the so-called Danville Race Riot of 1883? Well, that's an interesting question because, of course, the Danville race riot in, is seen as a turning point in post-Civil War Virginia political history. The conservative Democrats who were trying to regain power after the Civil War had been, in a sense, forced to admit blacks to political and civil liberties. And the opposing party, the Republican Readjuster Party, had made tremendous gains Danville was a case in point. Danville had uh, blacks on the city council. They had black police officers. And the white citizens of Pennsylvania County really were uncomfortable with that. And so they issued a circular uh, 
condemning black participation in politics. And the interesting thing is, of course, that these white conservatives at the time considered any black participation to equate to black taking over. What was the Danville race riot of 1883? People were killed. Yeah, it it was really an argument between a couple of black men and and a white man that they argued and then they departed and then the, the whites came back in, in greater numbers and restarted the controversy and, and, and shots were fired and I believe four blacks and one white were killed. I don't think it was ever more than 30 or 40 people at the time. Why did it send such a shockwave through the white community? Well, because to the whites, this is what they were arguing, that any black participation in politics, any black officials elected would result in violence and lawlessness. And so they turned what was seemingly a, a, you know, a minor incident into a giant controversy for political purposes. But four blacks were killed in one right. white. But the, you know, the statistical uh, validity never, never bothered folks when they're, when they're using stuff for political purposes. The Democratic Party, the conservatives who were attempting to uh, regain power from the Republican readjusters, used the violence. They made speeches using the violence as examples of what would happen if you allowed these Republican readjusters who attracted black voters. This is what would happen if you, if you voted for the Republican readjusters, you would have violence in the streets. In essence, that's what they were saying. This is the period that lynchings began to increase in Virginia. And lynchings could be seen as part of this overall pattern that free blacks in our community are incitements to violence. And so the white community members perform these terroristic acts in order to prevent blacks from what they saw as naturally violent behavior. Do you think that the fear on the part of white people was more of losing power and therefore income? or more an actual fear of retribution on the part of African Americans for slavery and cruelty? I I think it was a combination of those things. I think that whites always projected their fear of blacks onto themselves. When slaves were emancipated, a lot of whites feared that they're going to rise up, they're going to remember all the oppression that they had suffered under slavery, and they're going to they're gonna rise up and attack us. And so lynchings, in a sense, might be considered preemptive strikes against that fear of violence from blacks. And every incident, even the relatively minor ones, such as the Danville fights could have been, was exaggerated because the purpose was to reinforce an, an already existing misperception that blacks were prone to violence. In the, in the years after Danville, there came to be in Virginia more and more racist laws designed to keep African Americans from voting. What we know as the Jim Crow legislation is a statewide set of laws. An example would be the use of the whipping post, which was primarily used against blacks for any kind of offense, um, you know, a, a public punishment, a holdover from the slavery days. Well, they made a law that said anyone sentenced to a public whipping would be disqualified from voting. So these racist laws and laws designed to prevent the black vote were enshrined legally into a new Virginia constitution in 1902? Yes, the, the constitution of 1902 
was specifically called to limit black participation in politics. It's the Constitution of 1902 that contains um, those notorious understanding clauses, for example, where when you went to register to vote, you were presented with a document or a part of the Constitution and then asked to explain it. And the person who evaluated whether you qualified or not was always a white person. The delegates at the convention, one of them even said, as they were debating this understanding clause, he even said, we don't intend this to be administered fairly or equally at all. They knew going in, whites would be sort of passed through and blacks would be treated differently. The other notorious aspect of the Constitution of 1902 was the poll tax. Not only did you have to pay it before the election, you had to have it paid up for the three previous years prior to the election that you intended to vote in as well. So it's not just simply, you know, oh, I forgot last year. Well, if you forgot last year, you weren't eligible to vote in the current year as well. And I remember I was raised in Norfolk. Virginia still had a poll tax on into the 60s. And I remember how angry my father used to get at the idea of having to pay to vote. He thought it was every American citizen's right and was really resentful of the fact that we still had to pay a poll tax. You know, this year, the Virginia legislature became the first lynching state in the country to pass an expression of regret for this dark chapter of racial terror. Yes, and that that's very important. And of course, there is a growing interest in these kinds of reconciliation projects across the state and across the nation. I, I think it's something that time has come, and we really do need to look at these horrible incidents in our past and try to understand that they have, they have connections with the current situation, with current injustice. This is the whole point of the Equal Justice Initiative. It's to try to establish the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow uh, has a bearing on our current on our current situation of injustice towards the African American community. Tom Costa, thank you for sharing your insights on with good reason. You're very welcome. It's been a it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Tom Costa is a professor of history at the University of Virginia College at Wise. This show is one of three episodes produced in partnership with History United. The next one in the series will look at Danville during the Civil Rights era. History United is a project of Virginia Humanities, encouraging regional collaboration and building community trust through a greater understanding of a shared history. History United's work is made possible by a grant from the Danville Regional Foundation. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. We had studio help from Mark Simpkins at the University of Mary Washington, Rosa Bott at the University of Virginia College at Wise, Bill Foy at Virginia Tech, and Eric Fay at the University of Chicago. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. 
Thanks for listening. Thank you.